So this is God's word to us. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Uh, I recently heard a story about a woman who joined her own search party. So what happened is she went out to Iceland, and she was on a bus, and they were touring the whole countryside, and at one point during one of the stops, she gets off of the bus, she changes all of her clothes for some reason, completely different outfit, and the party that she was with thought they lost her or left her, and so they go on the search party, and the woman just decides to join the search party to look for herself, because she didn't know who, who they were looking for. So this went on for hours and hours. It went on, and they couldn't find this lady, and, and then finally, as one of the people in the search party, they were describing what the lady looked like, she was like, Oh, 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 that's me. I'm totally okay. I'm okay. Sorry. I, I changed clothes, and yeah, I didn't realize that we were looking for me. And, and th the reason I share that story is that's kind of what our American God series felt like to me. And here's what I mean by that. Um, if you were with us the last seven weeks or so, we've been looking at the gods in our culture, gods that people in our society worship today, like sex and money and uh, materialism and comfort and all these other things, the God of self and autonomy. And as we are going through this, some of you are like, oh man, this is gonna be so good. I'm gonna bring my friend because they really need to hear this sermon. My friend needs to hear this. I hope they pay attention. I'm gonna send them the podcast. I want them to hear. And then halfway through the sermon, you're like, oh, they're talking about me, and that's the God that I worship, and I don't know if that was your experience with our series, but that was certainly mine, 
and I think it was really, really helpful for our church. I think it was a significant shift in a lot of our thinking as a church, but it was one of those things of like we actually all went, went out on a search party for ourselves with that series. Now, here's what's fun about Philippians. Philippians is answering the question, now what? Now what? The, the American God series was heavily, here's what you shouldn't do. Here's how you shouldn't worship. Here are all the things that promise significance and identity and meaning and pleasure, but they won't give it to you. So don't do this. Don't be like this. Don't worship these things. And then we showed how Jesus confronts each of those gods as the real God, the true God, the better God. But then the question that I've had from a lot of you is, but now what? We've heard about culture in America. We've heard about this moment that we live in, the complexity and chaos of our world. How do we then now live and that's the question that the book of Philippians is really answering. So we're going to take the next five weeks together as a church and then unpack that book. And what I want to do today is just simply give you an overview. We're not going to be uh, anchored specifically to uh, one section of Scripture in Philippians today, but I want to give you kind of an overview of this book and help you understand why this is significant for you and for me. Uh, if it's been a while since you've read this book, or maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and you've never read this book, uh, I, I want to tell you a little bit about it. So this was a book written by a guy named the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the very first church that he planted in Europe. And he's writing in 62 AD, uh, just absolutely loves this church. It's probably his favorite church in the New Testament, and they had a deep partnership together. So he's writing to them this letter, but what's interesting about it is where he's writing from. He's actually sitting in the heart of Rome in 62 AD. He's in a prison in Rome, He's chained to a Roman soldier while he's writing this letter, and he's at Caesar's house. So Caesar actually had a prison at his house there on the grounds, and he's there in Caesar's house in jail writing to this church that's 800 miles away. And here's the thing about a Roman prison. Like, our, our prison system is by no means a walk in the park, but at least there are three square meals a day. In a Roman prison, you didn't have that. You didn't have three square meals a day. In fact, they didn't do anything to intentionally keep you alive. They didn't feed you, and they often really uh, treated you pretty terribly. So to survive inside of a prison, you had to be dependent upon people outside of the prison, friends and family that cared about you, that would come visit you, give you money, give you stuff, give you uh, food to survive. And the Philippian church hears about Paul in prison 800 miles away. Uh, so just imagine, this is like from Oklahoma City to Breckenridge, Colorado. I was in Breckenridge last week, so I've got Colorado on the brain. This is a long walk. And they send a guy named Epaphroditus with some money and some food. And by the way, pregnant ladies out there, Epaphroditus, just consider it. Think about it. Uh, so Epaphroditus carries this gift of money and food, and he shows up to the prison, and he hands it to Paul. And Paul is just filled with joy. He's so thankful that they care about him, that they've remembered him. So he's writing this letter to say thank you for the gift. Thank you for keeping me alive. Thank you for your partnership in the gospel. So he writes the letter. He sends it back with Epaphroditus. Sucks to be him. He just made the trip. He's got to go all the way back, 800 miles. He delivers the letter to the Philippian church. And they stand there in the small house church that met in Lydia's house, this really wealthy business lady's house, in the middle of this Roman colony. They open up the letter, and they read it. And the stuff in this letter is some of the most encouraging, subversive things that you can read, especially for us in 2018 in our culture. Now, here's what's interesting about the letter. It's not just a letter of thanks. Hey, thank you for the gift. Thank you for keeping me alive. 
it's also a letter of concern. See, life in Philippi was really hard for Christians. The culture in Rome was pushing against these Christians. There was a small minority of Christians in Philippi, so they're surrounded by a bunch of Romans that were committed to Roman culture and worshiping the Roman pantheon, and here these Christians are wrestling and struggling with how do we actually live out our faith in this culture where we're getting opposition and pushback and suffering at every turn. So Paul is writing them to encourage them and to help unpack how to live faithfully in a difficult culture. But then in addition to that, there's also some relational tension in the church. Uh, These people had been brought together in a crazy way. You had a wealthy business lady named Lydia. Uh, You had a slave girl who was demon-possessed that Paul ended up uh, delivering her by the power of Jesus of her demons. And then you had a a kind of blue-collar Philippian jailer, and that's what made up this core team. So people from all different backgrounds and cultures, and here they are as Christians, and they're struggling to know how to interact with each other. How do we do this together? How do we do life as a gospel community? And some people are really filled with selfish ambition and pride, and they're, they're starting to kind of flaunt their attitudes around. And, and so Paul is, he's showing concern, not just say, saying thanks. He's showing concern for their opposition that they're experiencing externally and also for the the difficulty inside of the church and the relational tension that exists. Now what's really interesting is is verse 27 is what most uh, biblical commentators think is kind of like the the thesis passage, right? If, If Philippians had a main takeaway, like what's the heart of this letter that Paul wants to get across, it would be in verse 27. I just wanna read that to you one more time as we jump in. So chapter one, verse 27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's the heart of what he says. Now, if you read this in the Greek, and I know a lot of us read Greek in our free time, so if you read this in the Greek, it has even more of a powerful, powerful punch to it, and I think the CSB translation really nails the heart of what the Greek says, so I just want to read that to you. Here's what he says, just one thing. If you can get one thing from this whole book, if this is your takeaway, just one thing, as citizens of heaven. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Citizens of heaven. Think about that phrase for just a minute. He's writing to this church in Philippi, the Roman citizens. And Paul writes and he says, no, as citizens of heaven, here's how I want you to live. Isn't it tough to be a citizen in two different places at the same time? I don't know about you, but if you're a follower of Jesus, I found it really difficult to almost have one foot in this world and be a citizen of Moore or Oklahoma City or Norman and then have the other foot in heaven where I'm a citizen of heaven. And living out that dynamic as a follower of Jesus that's faithful and thriving and growing and a culture like ours that's complicated and hard and confusing and it feels like the target's always moving, I've just found it hard to live as a citizen of heaven while also being a citizen here in Oklahoma. Have you guys found that to be difficult at all? Doesn't it feel a little bit like our culture and our society has gone mad, like we all took a crazy pill and everybody's going crazy from our political leaders down 
people are just kind of bananas right now and things are weird and it's hard to know how to live and how to engage and how to be faithful and how to thrive as a follower of Jesus because it feels like the target is always shifting and always moving. You and I live in a place where there are clashing desires, right? So you have the desires of the world, the loves of the world, the vision of the good life that the world gives us. But then we also are Christians, at least a lot of us in the room, maybe not all of you are here and you're just checking things out. This is a great book for you because it's giving you a vision of the good life from Jesus' perspective. A vision of how to live and how to breathe as a follower of Jesus while being a citizen here. And I've found that to be very, very hard. Uh, Let me give you two reasons why I think it's really hard to live as a faithful Christian in our cultural moment. The first is that the world is shaping who we are and shaping what we love in powerful and often unseen ways. You and I are being shaped every day by the world to love a certain thing, to desire certain things, to want certain things, and it's really fast and rapid that we often don't even see it or realize it. Let me explain it like this. Have you ever felt good about your life? Content, happy, you didn't need anything, and then you walk into the mall, and after an hour or two, you walk out of the mall, and for some reason, you're like, man, I, my life is missing this and that, and I've got a list of things, and if I want the good life, I need to dress like that, and I need to purchase that, and if I had that in my home, it would be better. Do you ever have that feeling when you go to the mall? Some of you are like, no, I, I hate going to the mall. Going to the mall doesn't give me those feelings. So, okay, just plug in whatever store, your store of choice. Maybe it's an REI, uh, maybe it's Amazon online, wh- whatever it is. You go to the store of your choice, and you feel good about your life, and then you leave going, I, if I really want to be happy, I need this and that and all these things, and that's what I need. That's what's happening, but on a bigger scale, when you and I enter the world, you show up on a Sunday, and you're like, I feel good about Jesus, I feel good about life, I feel good about the Bible, I feel content, and then you leave and all of a sudden the vision of the good life that the world is giving you starts to stir up these desires and these wants in your heart. Maybe, maybe sex will do this for me or maybe singleness or marriage or maybe, maybe if I have enough money and do these things, like, and all of a sudden we're being shaped and formed by the world faster than what you are on a Sunday morning in church. And that makes it very, very hard because as what I've noticed as I've read through the, the words of Jesus, what passes as Christianity today in Oklahoma in 2018 is a far cry from Jesus' vision of Christianity in the first century. It's a far cry. So how do we live the way of Jesus when we're being shaped by the world? That's the question. And then the other thing that's hard, the other thing that makes us complicated is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Christianity is becoming increasingly more unpopular have you noticed? I remember going into a, a coffee shop that I would frequent, and um, I had a great relationship with the baristas and got to know them, and they were friendly, and I was friendly back, and, and I'd go in over and over, and, and one in particular, one barista there, she was so nice to me and just constantly talkative, and we'd engage each other in conversation, and one day she comes up to me, and she's like, hey, wh- what are you working on? I'm like, I'm working on a sermon. Why would you do that? Well, because I'm a pastor at a church, and I, I'm one of the guys that preaches, and And she's like, oh, okay. And then the next time I went in, she was cold and distant. And I remember like 11 years ago when you would say, yeah, I'm a pastor. Everyone's like, A, you're like 12 years old, so that's weird. Um, But B, that's cool that you're a pastor. That's a respectable position. But something shifted in culture where now even to be a, a pastor or a Christian is seen as, you're no longer seen as silly, you're now seen as dangerous. Like you might have somebody say, oh, you Christians, you know, 30 years ago, 
I think it's silly that you believe that Jesus is God and actually rose from the dead. I think that's kind of crazy, but I have respect for you and your beliefs. You're not hurting anybody. Something has shifted in culture now where actually to be a Christian itself is seen as dangerous. You are what's wrong with the world. You're oppressive and you're bigoted and you are actually what's wrong, putting restrictions and laws on people so they can't be their true self. In fact, uh, Barna Research did a number of polls that really back this up. The two ways that people think of Christianity, think of Christians uh, from a cultural perspective is as irrelevant and extreme. Those were the two most common words used, irrelevant and extreme. So Christianity, we're seen as both out of touch and out of balance. And so I don't know about you, but we kind of feel this as Christians and what's happening on the coast is quickly moving to middle America and you and I are sitting in Oklahoma going, how do I do this? How do I be a citizen of Moore or Norman or OKC inside of this crazy, complicated, weird culture? How do I faithfully live as a follower of Jesus and be a citizen of heaven? How do I do that? Well, that's why Paul is writing this letter, and that's why we're gonna take five weeks to unpack it. And Paul, in this book, is gonna give us three incredible things that I think is gonna shape and form how we think of ourselves in the world. So I wanna just unpack that to you. He's writing to the Philippians, but these are three things that you and I can latch onto. The first is this. Paul is writing to give the, the Philippians and us gospel identity. He's writing to give us gospel identity. Now I wanna tell you something that I think will change the way you read the Bible. The Bible was not written to you, but it was written for you. Do you know what I mean by that? Like when Paul's writing the Philippians, he's not thinking of us in this room, Frontline South, to you guys. No, he's actually writing to the Philippians in 62 AD in a certain culture, in a certain context, with certain ways of seeing the world. That's who he's writing to but it's for you and I as much as it was for them. So when you realize that about the Bible, that it was never written to us, it was actually written for us, so we gotta ask the question, what did it mean to them first? Because it can't mean to us what it never meant to them. So what did it mean to the Philippians? And, and what Paul does is he enters into their world, their Roman colonized world, and he writes some things to them that are subversive, that are, that are life-changing, if you can latch onto it. So here's what I'm gonna do. What I'm about to do for the next three or four minutes or so, is gonna be really exciting to a few of you that love history, and to others of you, this is gonna feel like a repeat of high school history class all over again, and you're gonna check out, but I'm okay with that. So three significant concepts that I need you to, to latch onto. Empire, Caesar, colony. Empire, Caesar, colony. What comes to mind when you think of the Roman Empire? What comes to mind? Maybe, maybe you have a bloody gladiator picturesque idea of the Roman army, this empire just waging war on all these other nations, conquering in the name of Rome, in the name of Caesar, destroying. Maybe that's what you have in mind is this bloody, cruel, harsh empire. But it was only that if you weren't Roman. And here's what's crazy. By the time Philippians was written in 62 AD, about one-third of the population of the world was Roman citizens. They were Roman citizens. About one in three people in the whole world were Roman citizens. And so for them, Rome was not a bad thing. For them, Rome was the best thing that ever happened. Rome was peace. In fact, they had this phrase, the Pax Romana, that basically meant Roman peace. Now we can enjoy this long peace, they also called it. We don't have to go to war anymore, so we can have a better life for our family and for our kids, and we can thrive and flourish. And, and Caesar has really brought about this 
long peace. And what's interesting is they had a phrase to describe this. They literally called it salvation. Salvation. So Romans would talk about the salvation that Rome brought them. Roman citizens, Rome has brought me salvation. In fact, they would say the person responsible for bringing the salvation was Caesar himself. Caesar has brought this salvation. That was a phrase that they would use. In fact, by the time Paul is writing to the Philippians, one of the biggest propaganda statements that was floating around in Philippi and this Roman colony, one of the biggest propaganda statements went like this. Caesar is Lord and Savior. Caesar is Lord and Savior. In fact, if you go back and you see Roman coins from around this era, there's a coin with Caesar's face on it. It has Caesar on the side, and on the other side, it basically says, it's in Latin, but if you translate it, it says, Son of God. Julius Caesar had passed away, and they were holding a funeral for him, and there's this comet in the sky that lasted seven days, and and all of a sudden, Caesar Augustus, uh, this nephew of Julius Caesar who was assassinated, who became adopted by Julius Caesar, he goes, look, that comet, that means that Julius Caesar was God, which makes me son of God. And everybody in Rome, they said, yeah, Caesar is Lord and Savior. In fact, there's another statement that was popular. There's no, under na- there's no other name under heaven whereby we could be saved but Caesar's. And these are all these statements floating around, and Paul knows this as he's writing, but it's not just to any location. He's writing to Philippi. Philippi was an incredibly patriotic, nationalistic town that loved Rome and loved Caesar. They just were obsessed with Caesar. There'd be flags everywhere. In fact, um, to get an idea of what it might feel like to walk inside of Philippi in 62 AD, I want to show you some pictures of Berlin in the 1930s. It would have felt like walking into the city of Berlin. Flags everywhere with patriotic, nationalistic symbols, there would have been, uh, you know, Caesar himself coming into town, people celebrating Caesar. There would have been people just freaking out in the crowds and saluting. And there's a common phrase that people would say, Caesar is Lord, all the time. You'd greet people with that phrase, Caesar is Lord. You'd start an Olympic game with that phrase, Caesar is Lord. You'd pass by the road, Caesar is Lord. You'd, you'd start a theater show, Caesar is Lord. Colony, this nationalistic incredibly patriotic place with just a few Christians inside of it. And so here's what you have. You have these Christians that are like, how do we do this? How do we live inside of Philippi, this nationalistic patriotic society? How do we do this as Christians? And here's what I'm gonna do. Um, Some of you have checked out on that history lesson, but you don't yet realize it, so I'm gonna stop talking for a few seconds and then you'll realize that you've checked out. Okay, so you're back with me? Great, it's good to have you. Why the history lesson? Why would I go through all of that? Empire, Caesar, colony, what does that have to do with what Paul, here's what it has to do with what Paul is saying in this letter. He's writing to a culture and a context that these Christians are struggling to know how to live and do it. How do we do this inside of this culture? They don't want us as Christians, and and, and how do we do this? And Paul's writing saying, here's what I want to do. I want to give you a gospel identity. And notice how he does it. In chapter 2 of Philippians, look at this, verse 9. Let me read it to you. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that who is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can you just imagine being in that small house church in Philippi and Caesar is Lord is the, is the call of the day. And here Paul writes and he says, and I'm giving you a gospel identity. Here it is. Caesar's not Lord anymore. Jesus Christ, he's Lord. He's the king. He's the savior. This would have been so unbelievable for them to hear. Jesus is Lord. And we're actually called to bow the knee and sub- take all of our life and submit it to the authority of this king, this Lord. No longer is our primary identity Roman citizens in Philippi that say, Jesus, or that say Caesar is Lord. Now our new identity is that we are blood-bought sons and daughters of God the Father and Jesus Christ is Lord. And all these other identities in my life, they get submitted to this bigger identity of, of being submitted to him. That's what Paul is doing. Now this is big for us in 2018 because he, like you heard in the American God series, even though we don't have Caesars today, we call those Caesars by different names. And the world holds out to us, if you wanna be secure and safe and live the good life, then you need to bow the knee to this or you need to bow the knee to that. If you want to experience joy, then you need to experience sexual pleasure on your terms or riches and wealth or possessions and stuff. You need to have, you need to get, you need to acquire. And so the world is, is, is saying these Caesar is Lord statements to you. Sex is Lord, money is Lord. All these other things are Lord and Savior. And what it means to be a follower of Jesus is actually to take all of those other identities and submit them to this new reality. No, 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 no. Jesus He's Lord, and I bow the knee to Jesus alone. What would it look like for you and I to enter the world and refuse to bow the knee to all the things that the world tells us to bow the knee to? I wanna show you a famous picture. This is the last one I'll show you of a guy named August Landmesser. Have you ever seen this? It's a picture of a German citizen who fell in love with a Jewish woman and he received immense persecution and opposition for his relationship to this Jewish woman. And so Hitler comes to town to his factory in 1936, and everyone else around him, they're saluting to Hitler, and here's August Landmesser, arms folded, refusing to do what everyone else around him is doing. That's one of the most subversive, helpful pictures of what it looks like for you and I to be a Christian in our culture as we enter the world and the world sings sex is god money is god possessions are god autonomy is god and we just stand there and we say no no jesus is lord and not just with our mouths but with our hearts and with our lives we orient everything around him reorient everything around him this is what this letter is going to do for us it's going to give us a gospel identity now, how do, you, how do we do that? How do we embrace a gospel identity and actually have it not just be theology in our head, but expressed in the way that we live, in the way that we interact, in the way that we do? How do we interact with this, and how do we embrace our gospel identity? Well, Paul's not just writing to give us gospel identity. He's also writing this letter to give us gospel grace. You actually need grace to embrace this identity. Gospel grace. I want you to notice the very third line in Paul's letter, the, the third line, Philippians 1, look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with all the overseers and deacons. Interesting, isn't it? Paul and Timothy, they're the servants, and these people are the saints. He's writing to them, but look at third line. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you. Uh, we typically read that if you're familiar with the New Testament and you read letters in the New Testament, you might check out and go, oh, that's just Paul being polite and cordial. He's just saying hello. Hello, good morning to you guys. Here's this letter that I've written to you to say thanks. But that's not what's happening. Paul is literally writing and he's saying, I am a dispenser of the grace of God in your life. The disruptive power to live this way. I'm, I'm going to give that to you through the power of the Spirit in this letter. Grace to you. What is grace? It's a term that we throw out a lot. Uh, typically something like this. Oh, just have a little grace. Right? Oh, just have a little grace. What does it actually mean though when we say grace or the grace of God to you? Well, it means a few things. Here, here's the first thing it means. Gerald Hawthorne uh, he says this, he says the, it's the free, spontaneous, unmerited favor of God. You see, if you're curious about Christianity, it's not, hey, do a bunch of good things and then God will eventually learn to get over all the bad things that you've done and maybe eventually if you keep at it and really show that you're faithful, he'll fall in love with you and he'll be for you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that it was while we were dead in our trespasses and sins that the grace of God came to our rescue. It made us alive by his grace. What is grace? Grace is that when you walked in this room, God looks at you and because of the finished work of Jesus, if your hope is in him, he literally doesn't treat you at all connected to your behavior, at all. <laughs> Good week, last week, bad week, doesn't matter because the way that God sees you and the way that he moves towards you is with a heart not to crush and destroy you, but to lavish blessing and love and undeserved favor on you. That's what grace is. Grace is so big that God the Father sent his only son to this earth to die in our place and rise again so that people like us could be brought into his family. Grace to you. This justifying thing that makes you right with God grace to you but it's more than that it's not just something that makes you right with God it's not just something that gives you God's initial favor and then he goes all right I hope it works out well go have fun no who's Paul writing to he's writing to Christians and yet Christians still need more grace he says hey Christians in Philippi life is hard that Roman colony is very difficult and there's a lot of opposition grace to you I love this definition of grace from John Mark Comer because it's really more about uh, not just this initial thing that God does, but what he continues to do in our lives. He says, it's the lavish, opulent, raw, untamed, scandalous blessing of God. Unearned, undeserved, illogical, disproportionate, poured out through Christ, listen to this, over every facet of your life. And it's the living presence of the creator God deep inside you poured out through the spirit in a flood of euphoric joy, transcendent peace, and limitless power to be and to do and live up to God's calling on your life. That's what is being given to you in this letter. Just this raw, untamed, opulent grace of God in your life. 
It's grace to live in this complicated world as a follower of Jesus. That's what he's giving you. And then finally, the last thing that this letter is gonna give us over the next five weeks that I want you to receive is gospel assurance. So gospel identity, where we take all these aspects of our lives, our maleness or femaleness, our republicanness or democraticness, whatever, our richness or poorness, our singleness or being married, all these other identities, and we submit them to the greater identity of being under the lordship of Jesus Christ as citizens of heaven. It's a letter of grace to you. Grace, would you receive that grace to live and to do and to grow into who God is calling you to be? And then finally, number three, gospel assurance. Let me just tell you um, one of my fears as a pastor and one of my fears as a Christian. One of the greatest fears that I have is that I will not be able to finish well. This wasn't a fear that I had in my early 20s, but the older I get, I'm not old by any means, but the older I get, the more I just watch people. I watch people grow old. I watch my friends who are pastors in other places fail, walk away from Jesus. I interact with other Christians, and one of the greatest fears that I have is that I won't be able to finish well. The questions like this are in the back of my mind a lot. What if I blow up my life? What if I'm unfaithful? What if one day I wake up and I just can't seem to get my heart close to Jesus anymore and I want to just run? What if sin becomes one day so attractive to me that I can't help but reach out and grab it? What if I grow up and I don't become a softer man, a more gentle man, a more gospel-centered man, but what if I grow up and I become a curmudgeon that's angry and frustrated, terrible towards my wife and kids? I don't know if you feel this, but I think you might. Most Christians that I've interacted with over the last 11 years, they don't say this, but they have the same fear. Almost like in the back of our heads, there's gonna come a day where we're gonna run away from this. We're gonna run away from Jesus and we're gonna go live like the world. What if we do that? This is one of the most assuring realities that Paul says in Philippians 1. Look at verse three. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He's, he's having memories of when he first met him in Philippi and they became Christians. I remember you, I'm thinking about you. And he says this in verse six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you have the fear that I have, can I just speak to your fear and to my fear in this moment? Why would Jesus start a good work in you that he has no intentions of ever finishing? Jesus does not have buyer's remorse. He's not gonna wake up one day and go, what have I done? I can't believe you're a blood-bought per- That was a waste. He doesn't say that. He won't say that. He can say that. He, look, he looks at you and to deny you would be to deny himself. He says, I've started something in you. I was the one that did it. I was the one that called you. I was the one that gave you this gospel identity. I am the one giving you the grace to carry it out in this complicated culture and world. I started a beautiful work in you. I'm gonna bring it to completion. It doesn't matter what happens with our world or with your life or with your family. I will bring it to completion. He gives us gospel assurance. 
And by the way, friends, this is not just a futuristic promise that we have to wait one day to die so that we can have him finish what he started. There is a finishing thing that will happen upon our death, but it's something that is a present reality. Listen to this from Jay Motyer. He says, the assurance God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees too every experience of every day. For in all things, God is putting the finishing touches on. Good news, bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble, it all has a purpose. So I don't know what you're going through today, where you're at, what is good, what is hard, what's difficult, what's painful. He is currently finishing in you what he started. That's what this book is going to help you see. You'll be able to receive grace. You'll be able to step in and actually submit all these other identities to him and bow the knee only to Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and live in this world in a way, I think, that is not just salt and light, but it's you thriving and growing as a follower of Jesus that's having that good work being finished.